Well, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark in the 11th chapter. And we are getting part two of the lesson from the fig tree. Now, we're at the, the beginning of the last week of the, of the Lord's ministry, and it's just a, it's just a few days before, before He dies. And um, I find it interesting, the topics that He chooses to teach on. And, and some of that, of course, is, is, is based on what the, the disciples needed. But, but what would you teach on if you only had a few days to live? What would be the topic that, that you would cover if you had a group of followers or your own children or your family or, or whoever it might be? What would you choose to emphasize? So that's interesting to me as I look at the lessons that he's teaching his disciples. Now, I understand what he's going to do in the, in the, in the Temple Mount and he's going to, he's going to, to lay out the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and condemn them, but he's teaching his disciples. So that's interesting to me. It's also, this lesson in particular is also interesting because it's, uh, it's the second lesson from the same tree. This is the first evidence of recycling in the Bible. Maybe the green evangelicals have it right, huh? No, they don't. This is a multi-use tree. Two lessons from it. One lesson while it's alive and one lesson after it's dead. And may I just say to you, you're no different. You are giving a lesson to others by how you live, how you live your life. And you will be a lesson to others in your death. The last time, the last lesson, I should say, that we got from this tree, the, the tree had leaves, and it looks alive, and, and God's power was absent. I mean, that was the point. It was all leaves, and it had no fruit. It looked like it had the power of God, but it didn't have the power of God. This time, Jesus is going to show them where that power and that fruit actually comes from, and He's going to teach them that through a withered tree. Now, I want you to remember the context here. Following the triumphal entry, Jesus rides into the temple, and He examines it right before leaving. The temple comes under divine scrutiny. And you can tell by the next day that uh, the Jesus response that he doesn't like what he finds. The next day he uh, returns and he attacks the temple. He attacks the system. He attacks the leaders of the day. He turns over the tables. He releases the animals and the doves and forbids any merchandise from being uh, cut through uh, one gate of the temple or the shortcut out the back. He upends everything. And and he makes a divine declaration about the, the religious system of that day. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer, and you have made it a robber's den. You've made it a, a den of thieves. And he connects Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, 11. He takes something from both of those verses and he puts it together in that divine declaration that he, that he speaks. He declares prophetically what the temple should be. It should be a house of prayer for all nations, Jew and Gentile. And then he exposes what it has in fact become. And it has become a, a den of, of thieves. The, it's, it's quite an appalling sight to, to God Himself. The temple is significant. We said last week, if you, 
You want to see the, the pattern of the nation of Israel? Look at the temple. Look at what's going on at the temple. And you'll see. It's quite an appalling sight what Jesus sees. It's the only place, the temple is the only place on earth that God has set aside where He'll meet sinful man in mercy. Up until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is at the holies of holies, it is in the mercy seat where God has chosen the only place on earth where, where mercy can be, can be delivered. And obviously all of that is a shadow and uh, looking forward to what, what will come or the one who will come. It's operated by the very people God has chosen in grace to be His witnesses. And in the very location God has set apart for evangelism to the Gentiles, the court of the Gentiles, His worship was being profaned, His, his witness hindered, and... And the leaders showed zero care for the very people that they were supposed to to be a witness to. And God judges them severely. The temple was all leaves and no fruit. And the fig tree was a preview for the disciples before he ever gets there. It was an illustration of the judgment to come. And the cleansing of the temple, as we typically call it, is a preview by action. That's what God is going to do because they refuse to repent, and that judgment begins that day. It continues, as we said, with the, the, the ripping of the veil of the temple, and then in 70 A.D., and that will continue until a new temple comes in the tribulation period, and then ultimately the millennial kingdom. Jesus pronounces the curse, and the system was judged, and it took 40 years for them to realize it. They keep going through the motions, they keep offering the sacrifices, they keep doing all of those things, and Ichabod was there. In the same way, the fig tree that Jesus curses the day before immediately dies, but it's not until the next day that the disciples recognize it. And Jesus uses this same withered tree to teach them and us a powerful lesson on on prayer, it's a, it's a lesson on the power of prayer. Now, why a lesson on prayer at this point in time for, for the disciples? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Jesus is getting ready to go away. And He uses these last few days and this specific object lesson to remind the disciples where that kind of power comes from. Because that's exactly what they're going to need to draw from whenever He ascends into heaven. I mean, think about it. Jesus has been with them for three years. The disciples have lived with God Himself. Jesus was God in human flesh, and now He's going away, but that power wasn't leaving. It was available to them. And it's available to us this morning. And it's available through prayer. And so, there's a lesson on no power from a tree with all leaves but no fruit, and now a lesson on all power from a, from a withered tree. Now, don't answer this out loud, but do you believe in prayer? I do. Um, I find the longer that I'm a Christian, the more I believe in it, the more I want to do it, and, and the more important it is to me, the more I understand why in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were to dedicate themselves to the, the study of the Word and prayer, not just, not just one or the other. Do you believe in, in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? Then do you pray? Because 
That's the ultimate expression of whether you truly believe in it or not. If you don't, I'd question if you really believe in its power. If you don't pray, then those two things can't go together. And if you pray like Jesus instructs us here, then the Bible says God's power will be available to do His work in this life. Let's see exactly what Jesus teaches the disciples here. And here is the the outline. How to have the power of God through prayer. Very simple concept. You, You could say three lessons to have the power of God through prayer because there are... There are three parts to the the passage. There's the command that Jesus gives, have faith in God. Then there's the instruction to offer prayer to God. And then there is the admonition to remove sin before God. Have faith in God, it's where the power comes from. Offer prayer to God, that keeps our faith fixed in the right place, the practice of prayer. And then remove sin before God, because if that's there, it cuts off both. It cuts off both both faith and it it hinders prayer. So faith, prayer, and confession. They all come together to give us access to the power of God. And if you leave any of those out, Jesus says, you have no power. Let's look at the first one. There's a command to have faith in God. Because that's where the power comes from. That's where the power comes from. And through verses 20 through 23, faith is commanded, faith's power is described, and faith is practiced. Jesus tells them how to do that. Look, if you would, at verse 20. It says, As they were passing by uh, in the, passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. But being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And then Jesus speaks and gives a command. Jesus answered, saying to them, Command, have faith in God. And then faith's power is described, and then he shows us how to practice that faith in in prayer. So the next morning, the disciples and Jesus are on the way back to the temple. They probably were staying at Mary and Martha's house in Bethany. And they come upon the tree, they come upon the fig tree, which is now withered up from the roots. It was green and leafy yesterday, today it's dead, and it's dead from the roots. And that shocks Peter. And he speaks on behalf of all of the the other disciples. I love Peter, because Peter asks questions that I would ask, but probably would be be embarrassed to ask. He, He just says it, and everybody else is like, yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, I think this is quite comical because Peter here is pointing something out to Jesus, the one who did this to the tree. As if he had the power to do that to the tree, he would know that the tree was dead. But there's a theological point here that's significant. Mark makes sure that we know that Peter attributes this to Jesus. Verse 21, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus is the one who cursed the tree. It was an act by the Son of God himself, just like Jesus is the one that makes the pronouncement over his own temple. It's his authority. And that's not inconsistent with God. 
Deuteronomy, whenever the children of Israel went into the land, God told them, if you obey me, if you keep my covenant, you'll be blessed. If you don't, then curses will coming and the, will come. And the, and the, the judgment, though, is, is not what shocked Peter. It was the withering of the tree. It was how the tree died so quickly. Do you see that? Uh, uh, that's what he's amazed by. In Matthew 21, verse 20, the parallel passage, Matthew says, when the disciples saw it, all of them, they marveled. What were they marveling at? Well, Matthew tells us, how soon is the fig tree withered away? That's what they're marveling at. How, how did this happen? How did this tree die so quickly? Now, there's no discussion here about the temple. I find that interesting. I mean, if I was one of the disciples, I, I would probably go, what? wow, did you see what Jesus did yesterday? I mean, he really made everybody mad. Can you believe what he, what he did in the temple? Why would he do that? But they're marveling at the power it took to curse the tree. Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed, it has withered. It's like a question in the form of a statement. How does that kind of power work? How, how does that happen? I mean, that's what they're saying here. And the disciples have seen many positive miracles, but they've never seen anything like this. Fully grown, fully grown healthy trees don't wither up in 24 hours, and they're, and they're shocked. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to teach them where this power comes from because they have access to the exact same power. Look at how Jesus answers in verse 22 to his shock of how does this happen? Where does this kind of power come from? Verse 22, Jesus answered, have faith in God. And then he describes the power available through this parable or this proverbial statement about mountains being cast into the sea. And then he connects that to the practice of prayer. He brings it all together in this passage. He says, have faith in God. That's where he starts. It's a command. It, it serves as an introduction. It serves as an introduction to the power that's, that can cast mountains into the sea. It serves as an introduction to prayer. God is the theme of this, this whole thing. It's the overarching theme of the passage. He will describe prayer and what hinders it, unconfessed sin, uh, difficulties in our relationships, uh, be, being unwilling to forgive. But he starts with God. Have faith in God. He is where this kind of power comes from. That's how Jesus begins to answer the question. It's God. Faith is not about you. It is about God. That's what the, the, the money teachers get wrong. If you go into any health, wealth, gospel church, if you turn on anything on TV, if you go into some evangelical churches that may even get the, the echo of the gospel right, they will focus a lot on your faith the strength of your faith. How much faith do you have? You exercising your faith. And yet the focus that Jesus gives here is not the strength of your faith. Jesus focuses on the source of the power, which is God. That's the emphasis. Not our faith, but in God. Frankly, your faith is small. And so is mine. It's, it's really small. Um, and yet, Jesus says that when it is even small, even as small as it is, it, it, it has, it has mountain-moving 
ability. It's the size of a mustard seed. But the God that you lay hold of is the one who melts mountains like wax. And that's why mountains can be cast into the sea. The faith, think about this, the faith that amounts to as much as a mustard seed. Because yours is small and mine is small. Jesus is constantly telling the disciples, Oh, ye of little what? Faith. It's not about how much faith that you have, the strength of your, of your faith. It is about the power of God. Faith that amounts to as much as a mustard seed taps into tectonic power. Power that can bring about amazing future things. Now, you see how you can get messed up or discouraged if you move the focus to your faith? God is the place that Jesus tells us to focus. Um, and if you do, He is powerful. So I describes that power that is available, the power that comes from God. Look at the rest of verse 22, or 23, I should say. Truly, I say to you, truly is, what's following is important. I'm going to emphasize something. Truly, I say to you, have faith in God. Emphasis, the power of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will, future, be granted. Now, if you've heard this before, it's because Jesus said it before. It's a general proverb of the day. It's, it's similar to what we would say today. I heard one commentator emphasize this past week. It's like, that man can move mountains. It's, a, it's hyperbole. It's a, it's, it's a proverb. But I want you to notice that something Jesus does here. In verse 23, Truly I say unto you, whoever says to this mountain, talks about a specific mountain. Now think about where he's at. He's in the last week of his ministry. Right after he cleanses the temple, right after he ties the fig tree to the temple, and now he's talking about a specific mountain. Jesus uses things around him to teach, and this is no different. And I think there's two possibilities, and I don't think either it matters. One possibility of this mountain is the Mount of Olives. They're headed back to the temple, so he says this mountain. He's teaching them on the Mount of Olives, or he's talking about the Temple Mount. This mountain is going to be cast into the sea. You can see the Dead Sea from Jerusalem, so that's probably the sea that he's talking about. And it really doesn't matter whether it's the Mount of Olives that he's, that he, that he's meaning or the Temple Mount, because both fit the main point. And the main point is the parameters of your faith that are the promises of God. The focus is God. That's where the power comes from. And the boundaries of, those, of that power is God's promises. And He's bringing them back to the Messianic promise. The mountain is to remind them of the promises that are to come. It's, it's the fig tree represented the temple and the leader's but God's plan is not over. God promises something in the future about this mountain. This mountain will be moved. This mountain will be raised up by a sovereign power and a new temple, new leaders, a new kingdom that will come. Zechariah says the land will be turned into a plain. We're going to be in Revelation tonight. And in the sixth uh, bold judgment, 
Jerusalem is split in three places in order to prepare for the millennial kingdom. And God's power is connected to His promises. And power comes when you pray according to the promises of God. Notice he says, don't doubt in your heart, but believe what he says is going to happen. It will be granted. Notice the focus is in the future. Now, the Bible says a lot about prayer, doesn't it? Not just here, but other places. Faith is the instrument by which we lay hold of God's promises. And the Bible says a lot about prayer. Matthew 5, verses 5 and 6, tells us that our prayer should not be hypocritical. It's not to be seen by others. It's not to be meaningless repetitions. We're not to think that God's going to hear us because we say the same thing over and over and over. It's to focus on God first and then our needs. The Lord's Prayer, as it's called, has six petitions. Three to God, three for us. Three focused on the Lord, three focused on us. Because it's His will that we seek. In Matthew 5, it's called the Lord's Prayer. But I don't know if you thought about this or not, but the prayer that's coming up in the Garden of Gethsemane is actually that same prayer practiced. The Lord's Prayer practiced in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, I think you could title that practicing the, the Lord's Prayer because it shows us the fundamental key to prayer and our fundamental failure. You remember what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is in need and he's agonizing in prayer to the, to the Father. And in that prayer, Jesus voluntarily surrenders his will to the perfect will of the Father. His human frailty desires one thing, but he surrenders those desires to the perfect plan of the Father in full, in full trust. And that's exactly what we have to do in prayer. We're now new creations in Christ Jesus. Without that, you wouldn't have any desire to do the right thing or to do anything that's pleasing to the Lord. But you're now new creations in Christ Jesus. And we have a spiritual life and the Spirit of God in us and we have holy desires that we didn't have before. But you have to make these holy desires what, what you live for. And that's a battle, isn't it? So when the unredeemed flesh fights against those holy desires, you submit in prayer and you say exactly what Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. When the doubt in your heart comes up, that's whenever you go to the promises of God and you agonize in prayer. It's, it's hard, isn't it? If prayer is not hard, then there's probably something wrong. Now, I don't mean it has to be hard every single time if it's some horrible grudging practice. But if you have not agonized in prayer, if you have not sensed the resistance of your flesh to the will of God, then you're probably not praying. Um, or, or maybe not focused on the will of God, whatever it might be. So how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you, uh, you say, I prayed before and I quit or I give up or it gets hard. And, and I mean, wh what do you do in light of that? Well, that's exactly what Jesus teaches us next. Regular prayer to God keeps our faith fixed in the right place. 
Offer prayer to God. Offering prayer to God keeps our faith fixed in the in the right place. If you would, at verse 24. He says, Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. I heard MacArthur say that this is like a Pentecostal's dream passage, right? But everything's qualified by what Jesus has said before. Have faith in God, and God's promises are the parameters by which His power is dispensed. God's not like a genie who just does whatever you ask. You're asking according to the promises of, of God. And you're asking God. So He's the source. And His promises are the parameter. He promised what He would do to Israel if they, if they forsook Him, if the leaders forsook Him. He promised that He's not done with Israel, this mountain. He's got a future for this mountain. All of that has to do with the promises of God. And regular prayer to God keeps our faith fixed in the right place. He's teaching the disciples where the power comes from. And he's teaching the disciples how to, how to remain focused there. Verse 24, whatever you ask, at the start of verse 25, when you stand praying. I mean, the focus here is regular prayer. When you stand praying. It's, it's when you stand, as if you do stand. Prayer is a regular part of a believer's life. Prayer involves the right position. God's the source the right posture, I'm not God, I'm a man humbly looking to Him, and the, and the right promise, what God says He will do. That's the subject matter. You want more faith? Pray. If you want more faith, if you want not more power, if you want more faith, if you want more power, you have to go to God, because God's the one that dispenses the power. If you want more faith to lay hold of the power... Then you pray. You practice prayer. You participate in prayer. You offer prayer to God. You do that regularly. You do that habitually. You do that daily. You do that whenever it feels good. You do that whenever it doesn't feel good. You do that whenever it feels like that the, the, uh, it bounces off the ceiling. You do that when it feels like that the heavens open. One of my favorite illustrations comes from Adrian Rogers. And I think I've told it to you before about when he got up one morning... And he went to pray, and he said it just, just felt like he was swimming in concrete. That's my phrase, not his, but just hard. You've, you've been there. You go to pray, you're distracted. It just doesn't feel like that anything is getting through. He feels bad. He said he had a headache, and he went to his cupboard. He opens the door. He gets an Alka-Seltzer, pops it in there, drinks the Alka-Seltzer. About a half hour later, he feels pretty good, and he goes back to prayer, and he said a heaven came down. It was just it was amazing. And he said, now, friend, was I on any more praying ground before I took the Alka-Seltzer or after? He said, don't come to God with a handful of the brass of your emotions. Come to God based upon the full worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your access to God. And you pray before the Alka-Seltzer and after the Alka-Seltzer. And you focus on God. That's how your faith is built. It's, it's the practice of regular prayer is a protection against unbelief. If you are not praying, you are full of unbelief. And the way that you're going to get rid of unbelief and build your faith is to, is to pray. Prayer itself is an act of faith. 
you should think of regular prayer as something that boosts your faith uh, immune system. Um, what distinguishes the faith that Jesus calls for from the self-intoxication we often call faith is the discipline of prayer. I don't like the definition, prayer is simply talking to God. Uh, unbelievers talk to God, but God doesn't answer them. And I understand that, that we're trying to, to, to say that prayer is not some liturgical, uh, you've got to say the right words and you know wear the right clothes. We get that. But prayer is thanking God, prayer is confessing to God, prayer is repenting before God, prayer is asking God, prayer is focusing on His promises. Prayer is talking to God, but it's all those other things when you talk to Him. And the focus is His promises. God's promises set the parameter for prayer, and that's what we lay hold of through faith. Faith is the believing response to the promises of God. It's being fully persuaded that what God promised, He's able to deliver. And the more that you do that, the more that you know about His promises, i.e., read the Bible, sit under the Word of God, the more you know about the promises of God, the more you know about God, the more you know about what He says He did and what He says He's going to do, the more that you practice that, the more that you take that to God in prayer, the stronger your faith becomes. That's what Jesus is, is saying here. Abraham is the... The great example is the father of faith who believed God's promises to the point that if Isaac died, God would raise him from the dead. Abraham said he promised Isaac, and if he dies on the altar, then God will do whatever he needs to bring his promises to pass. That's what he means. Even a resurrection. How did Abraham get there? Well, it was many years of practicing prayer before God and failing. Offering prayer to God that keeps your faith focused in the right place. So let me put all this together for you. The source is God. How does this kind of power happen? How does this happen? Where does this power come from? The source is God, Jesus says. The promises are the description of the power. It's what He's going to do. Faith is your believing response to that, and prayer is how you express that, that faith. That's a whole lot more than just asking God to bless your food or go through the day, right? Let me say it the opposite. If there was no God, then faith would be meaningless. It would be meaningless sincerity. If there was no promise, then faith would be an empty shell. There would be nothing concrete to believe, nothing to connect to. And if there's no faith, then there's no connection to the promise. And if there's no prayer, then there's no expression of that faith. So pray. That's what Jesus is saying here. James chapter 4, verse 3 says, You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motive. You probably know that very well. Because you prayed for something and God didn't answer it. Why isn't God answering? You're searching my heart, trying to figure out why isn't God answering my specific request. And so, oh, I remember there's a passage in James that says, I don't have because I don't ask. So I'm going to ask more. And then he goes on to say, well, if he still doesn't ask, it's because I'm asking 
with the wrong motive. Now, most people try to pull that passage apart, and I think that it's very important that you keep both of them together whenever you're thinking about prayer. They want to isolate. What James is saying is, you have not because you ask not. What you should be asking for is not what you're asking for. What you should be asking for, love and peace and and joy and, and hope and faith and to believe. That is what we really need. But we're not asking for that because we're asking for all of these other things that are about us. I think James is taking our focus back to God. We have not because we ask not. And we need to be asking. We need to be asking God. We need to be asking for specific things about God. His promises. We need to be focused on the Lord. And we're not focused on the Lord because James says we're focused on ourselves. And the solution is what Jesus modeled for us. Not my will, but but yours be done. John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. First John, I should say. This is the confidence which we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we ask from Him. Answered prayer is qualified by the will of God, by the promises of God, both circumstantial and determined. His determined will is fixed in the Bible. That's what He decrees. That's what He declares. His circumstantial will works out in providence. And both of them are the the boundaries of, of answered prayer. That's why it's vital that we ask for faith and love and peace and hope and the fruit of the Spirit and so we can trust Him whenever we can't see. So there's the power. There's the parameters. It's the promises. Your focus is on God. Prayer builds that faith muscle, if you will, that connects you in the right place, keeps you within the parameters. But all that can be hindered. It can be hindered. I think if you if you want a, a takeaway from this entire passage, like what do I do? Pray and remove sin, confess sin. I mean, those are the two things that Jesus says you do. Regular prayer and then removing sin before God because that cuts off both both the power and hinders the faith. Look, if you would, at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. You could stop right there, right? If any, anyone has anything, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your trespasses. Regular prayer will insulate you Regular prayer will insulate your faith from doubt and unforgiveness can drain your faith from its potency. I mean, if you want to put verse 25 bluntly, Jesus says prayer is hindered by sin. Now, don't miss the focus here or you'll, you'll get messed up like the, like the focus of, is on your faith rather than on God's power. Sin here is not like a set of scales. 
where God only answers if uh, answers your desires if you're a good Christian. I mean, that's Catholic. It's not biblical. It's like earning answer to prayer. I, I want to make sure I do everything right. I want to make sure that I, you know, I've got my life completely in order. If I've got my life completely in order, and there's absolutely nothing going on in my life, then then that's going to elevate me before God, and God will really pay attention to me, and then God will answer my prayer. That's not what Jesus is is saying here. What he's saying is sin dulls your eyes and pollutes your heart and chokes out your faith. And faith is what you have to reach up and to believe the promises of God, and then God connects that to the power. What you need to be fully focused on God and the way that you do that is practice prayer, but you can't do that and you won't do that if there's no fellowship. Unforgiveness and sin is like a, like a root ball in your water line. It's like a hair clog in your sink drain. Now, the only thing that Jesus lists here is forgiveness, forgive. But you can include all sin under that heading. This is like what James does when he says a person's religion is vain if they don't bridle their tongue. And is that the only thing that makes your religion vain if, if, if what comes out of your mouth is just what you say? So, I mean, I could have a heart that's completely full of wickedness. As long as I don't open my mouth, then my religion's not in vain. No, the tongue is the outward expression of the heart. It's the, it's the end. What's in the heart comes out the mouth. And he's doing the same thing the same thing here. Forgiveness of others is the same. It's the end point of your faith in God. It's, it's the ultimate practical theology. It's the practice of your, your love of God. We love Him because He first loved us, and we love others because we, we love God. And if you won't love others, it's a window into your love for God. It's, it's an evidence that either affirms or convicts you. And it's why it's connected to, to prayer and power. Jesus is not talking about salvific, salvation forgiveness, even though the next verse implies that. He's talking about the basis of your fellowship with God, prayer. But if you're an unforgiving person, if you continually and habitually hold grudges, if you hold a high bar of granting forgiveness when someone genuinely seeks it, and even then you make them pay dearly to get it, then there's something wrong with your view of the love of God. We forgive because we've been forgiven ourselves. And so when we have unforgiveness, there's something wrong with the vertical relationship. The way that you forgive is a window in how you view God's forgiveness. And Jesus is talking about faith and prayer. And so this is a warning of what will hinder your prayers. It's what will keep you from laying hold of the power of God. It's what will keep you from believing the promises of God. And Jesus says the bottom line here is you can hold a grudge, 
or you can have your prayers answered, but not both. And to go a step further in verse 26, if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father who is in heaven forgive your trespasses. If there's never been any forgiveness, if you are an unforgiving person, period, then you should check to see whether you're really saved. If you're a believer and you hold grudge, then your prayers are going to be hindered. If you're an unforgiving person, then that's an evidence that you've never experienced God's forgiveness to begin with. And His forgiveness is full and free, isn't it? Get you to bow your heads. We're going to pray over a couple of men in just a moment. But before we do, I want to ask you a couple of questions. Do you have someone that you are holding a grudge against in your life? Whenever I read that passage, did the Holy Spirit of God bring somebody to your mind? Because if so, that's probably the individual that God wants you to forgive. And it's probably somebody that you haven't forgiven. And it's probably why your prayers have been hindered. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever received the forgiveness of God? Do you know what it is like to have your record expunged, cleansed? Do you know what it feels like to have your your conscience cleansed from dead works? To literally lay down at night and have a clear conscience. Not that you never did anything wrong, but that it's, it's dealt with, it's done, it's been forgiven. If you have never experienced that, Jesus Christ offers it to you this morning, full and free. He's already paid it all. But you have to come to Him and turn from living on your own, your own ways, your own sin, your own direction, and you... You confess Him as Savior and Lord. Receive what He has done for you on the cross. And then you start living for Him. Let me ask you another question, Christian. And this will be the last one. Do you pray? How often do you pray? Do you exercise yourself in prayer? If you don't, it's a window into the strength of your faith. And you'll never be strong in faith unless you practice prayer. And as you do, focus on God and His promises. And then you'll get stronger and stronger and stronger. And the Lord will work mightily in your life.